Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, please turn in your Bible to Isaiah 40. We're going to return to our study of Isaiah this morning. And to begin with, I'd like to share an illustration from uh, history. King Louis XIV reigned as king over France for 72 years, longer than any other uh, monarch in all of history that we're aware of. Uh, nobody's reigned that long that we know of in history. And uh, during his reign, France emerged as the leading power in Europe. They regularly asserted their military might. Uh, the, King Louis was the one who built, King Louis XIV was the one who built the palace and gardens at Versailles. Uh, he founded the French Academy of the Sciences. He was truly a magnificent monarch, and he began to refer to himself uh, as Louis the Great, kind of a self-serving title, uh, but on human terms, he, you know, he probably deserved it. We look back at what he accomplished, and it, it was amazing. And he began referring to himself as Louis the Great. He also, in the art, he had many, many paintings commissioned of himself, and he began cultivating this image of himself as the sun king, and what he meant with the sun, the, the symbolism he intended by being the sun king was that he was uh, the center of the universe and was without equal. Um, now, as King Louis's life drew to a close, he designed his own funeral to be the most magnificent funeral of any king in French history, at least to that point. Uh, he had ordered for his body to be placed in a golden coffin uh, that was created by one of the best uh, artists in France. Uh, his body was to be laid in state in this golden coffin in Notre Dame Cathedral, and uh, he ordered that all the candles that typically lit the cathedral were to be uh, snuffed out, and there was to be one single solitary candle at the head of his coffin symbolizing his greatness. When he died, uh, thousands of people attended his funeral service and uh, looked on in hushed silence. Uh, I like to think that maybe they were pondering on the fact that their great king, who had led uh, France to a kind of, you know, human glory among the nations, for many of the people there, it was probably the only king they had ever known, uh, right? Um, and he was dead, and they looked on in hushed silence, and King Louis had asked Bishop Massillon to give his funeral oration, his sermon. And as Massillon entered the pulpit that day, uh, he shocked everybody because he reached down and very slowly snuffed out the lone candle at the head of Louis's coffin. And the first words of his sermon, which he repeated twice in French, were, God alone is great. God alone is great. That truth is foundational to the Christian life. It's the bedrock on which the other truths of Scripture are built. And the church has perceived God's greatness in rich and profound ways in the past, uh, but sadly, our sense of God's greatness has been lost, uh, I think, particularly in contemporary American churches. Now, I believe this loss has come about not because the church has replaced the, the true God with some other conception of God. It's come about because we've replaced true thoughts about God with uh, flawed views of Him. Now, I think, this is my opinion, I'm going to be theologizing here, I think this has come about in part because of American evangelicalism's emphasis on the nearness of God. And we do need to affirm 
God is near. Uh, God does care. He is our Father. We can call Him Abba. But the danger is misrepresenting Him uh, when we emphasize God's nearness, but then we omit or um, de-emphasize, you know, omit, neglect, maybe you could say it that way, when we omit or neglect His transcendent greatness. God is exalted far above us. He's superior, and He's not just superior to each one of us individually. He's superior to all of humanity collectively. He is superior to anything in the universe that you could, could compare Him to. God alone is great. There's no one you can compare Him to. Uh, he is unrivaled and unparalleled in His greatness. And as I look at Psalm 40, and I think about the rest of the teaching of Scripture, in Psalm 50, there's this moment when God rebukes Israel, and His rebuke is this, you thought I was just like you. Uh, and I think that rebuke, it could be appropriate for the church in our generation. When Luther was debating Erasmus uh, in writing, in one of his letters, Luther finally got frustrated enough, he just wrote to Erasmus, your thoughts about God are too human. Uh, and I think that characterizes, sadly, some of our preaching and some of what goes on in our churches today. Whether we depict God as the uh, disengaged inventor who wound up the universe but is now distracted by other things, or uh, whether we treat Him like the clueless dad that we think we can pull one over on, we are in danger of blasphemously acting as if God is just like one of us. Whether we portray Him as an indulgent grandfather or the frustrated benefactor who has good plans for us, but His good intentions for us are constantly checked by our free will, either way, we are in danger of treating God like He's just like us. In generations past, a title, and I think you'll see this when you see what's in Isaiah 40 that we're going to look at today, but in generations past, a title like the awesomeness of our God or uh, God alone is great would have sufficed for this sermon, and I'm unhappy this week because I couldn't use those titles. I had to settle for like my third choice. And the reason why is because uh, the word awesome was destroyed in the 1980s. It was ripped off from the… So, awesome intended to convey the awe that we should have in the presence of our Creator and in His power, right? But in the 80s, it got ripped off from the church and used to communicate in the culture that which is hip, that which is cool, right? And even great, right? The word great has been dramatized and then put to use in advertising so that even my favorite cereal, Frosted Flakes, is now portrayed as great, right? They're, they're, they're not just good, they're great. And Frosted Flakes, right? A cereal that no one over 30 can eat because of the sheer amount of sugar, uh, but those are great. So then, so then think about this with me for a moment. Like, just feel my pain for a little bit, okay? Like, walk in my shoes. If a new action movie can be described as awesome, and if Frosted Flakes are great, is it any wonder that then if I try to preach God as awesome and great, that that just seems underwhelming to us and our worship is flat? Like, we need to see again God's greatness. And I think the only way to restore that, because I've lost the words great and awesome, I can't use those anymore and have it have an effect, uh, we need to just see God's greatness again for ourselves. And the best way to do that is to look at Isaiah 
40. So we're going to return to Isaiah 40. We're going to look at verses 12 through 31 today. And uh, since we've been away from our study of Isaiah, I just want to remind you about where we've come from so far. There are five major themes we've been interacting with as we've studied Isaiah. The first and most important theme is who this great God is that's the creator of all things and Israel's God. Isaiah's favorite name for him in this book is the Holy One of Israel. And he is not just holy. Uh, We saw in Isaiah 6, he is holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, that threefold repetition communicates that God is perfectly holy. And what holiness means in Hebrew is that he is set apart. He's in his own category. There's nothing you can compare him to. So, it really for us, functionally, his holiness means two things. Number one, it means that he is completely other than, separate from, and above and superior to his creation. Uh, He is dependent on no one and nothing for his existence. He's there, and he never goes away. Uh, And he's there to be dealt with on his terms or none at all. And also, he is not just set apart from the creation he's made, he's set apart from evil, right? He's not tempted to do evil, he doesn't commit evil, he doesn't tempt others to evil. And that should be a a great comfort to us that uh, the one at the top is good and does good. He's all-powerful, he does good for his people, even if it means that he disciplines us so that we'll begin to share more in his holiness Uh, He is good and He is holy. And this theme in Israel of God as Creator uh, and God as uh, the covenant God of Israel is a theme that we're actually going to look at today in Isaiah 40. The second big theme in Isaiah is the theme of judgment. God will judge evil in nations and individuals. Nobody's going to get away with anything in the long run. There is a coming day of accountability where everybody will be judged equitably, fairly, objectively, based on what they've lived for and what they've done with their lives and the opportunities God has given them. And when you look at this theme of judgment, one thing we need to clarify that, that, that the book of Isaiah clarifies is this. Though God has chosen the descendants of Abraham to be His special nation, His special people, He is not just Israel's God. He's the God of all people. He's the God of every nation. You see Him with messages and interacting with the other nations. In Isaiah 13 through 24, it's all about other nations other than Israel. And uh, one of the things those chapters communicate is that everyone and every nation will be brought to account and will answer to God. And uh, this reminder in Isaiah is a sobering one. It reminds us that our sin will destroy us unless we find a remedy for it. The third theme in Isaiah is the theme of hope and trust. Isaiah constantly… you can't read Isaiah without being challenged about where you're putting your hope, where are you placing your trust, um, who are you looking uh, to to come through for you. And uh, maybe we could say it this way. One of the dynamics of the human heart is that we tend to scatter our hopes into everyone and everything around us other than the Lord, and we pay for it with the trauma that our souls experience when those untrustworthy people or untrustworthy things let us down. And you see the same kind of dynamic going on in Isaiah, but on a national level with Judah. Judah scatters her hope into everybody other than Yahweh, and she ends up paying a high price for doing so. And so, we've had to talk a lot about this subject. Uh, It's been a few months now, but I think most of like 
most of January was dominated talking about what it means to trust God, what it means to not put our hope in those things that'll let us down and can't deliver, and then what it means to put our hope in God. And one of the points we made is that when it comes to trusting God, it's not enough to just know what the promises of God are. You have to actively choose to trust in them. Jerry Bridges says it this way in Trusting God. Trust is not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them. And so, a major theme in Isaiah as we've gone through it is, uh, where are you putting your hope? Who are you really trusting in to come through for you? Now, this subject of misplaced hopes and misplaced trust, uh, those misplaced hopes and those misplaced trusts can sometimes be a good indicator of idolatry, and that's the fourth theme in Isaiah. The one sin among all their sins, the one sin that got Judah in the biggest trouble was their idolatry. Uh, It led to God's judgment, and uh, we're going to see Isaiah confront idolatry again, Uh, just briefly. It's not the main point of the passage, but he is going to confront idolatry yet again in our passage today. And then the fifth theme of Isaiah is the theme of Messiah. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah was prophesying about uh, who he would be and the work he would perform. And uh, in the fall, in particularly, and even leading up to Christmas, it was a joy to preach to you about the righteous branch who is the root and the shoot of Jesse, uh, the child to be born named Emmanuel. And Emmanuel in Hebrew means God among us. And we learned about Emmanuel, that He will be a supernatural counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. And Isaiah says that when Messiah, when God's chosen servant comes, and when He brings His kingdom in all of its fullness on earth, there will be no increase to His government, uh, no, uh, sorry, there will be no end to the increase of His government, Uh, And also, He will remove many of the effects of the curse, and He will cause the knowledge of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Uh, Isaiah points our hope not just towards the Holy One of Israel, he does point it there, but he also points our hope to this special servant God will send who, Isaiah 53, will become a guilt offering for us so that our sin can be pardoned and dealt with, and we can avoid the judgment that we do deserve uh, because God will pave the penalty for that in the form of the Son. And so, Isaiah points our hope not just to the Holy One of Israel, but also Messiah. These are the big five themes, and as we, uh, in May, we're going to spend more time in Isaiah, and I just wanted to make sure I started off the month reminding you of these themes. The Holy One of Israel, the warning about coming judgment, trust and hope, idolatry, and our Messiah. Now, the section of Isaiah that we are in, the subsection, if you will, is uh, chapters 40 through 48, and I've already preached two survey sermons on those chapters um, back in March, and I don't want to repeat any of that here. I don't want to review that here, but I do want to just say this. this is, these chapters 
uh, are my favorite section. This is my favorite section of chapters in Isaiah. I love Isaiah 53, and I'm getting really excited about uh, preaching Isaiah 55 when we get there. But my favorite cluster of chapters that are all interlinked together is Isaiah 40 through 48. And the reason why is because for me, these chapters have done more to help me overcome my own anxieties and worship God for who He really is than any other section in the book. They put on display how great and awesome, in the old sense of the word, and transcendent our God is. And for the rest of May, what we're going to do is look at paragraphs within this section uh, that show us who our God is. So, let's read the text of Isaiah 40 together. We're going to study verses 12 through 31 this morning. Uh, Starting in Isaiah 40, you know, actually, I'll back up to verse 11. This is talking about the Lord, and this is what Isaiah says about the Lord. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? and weighed the mountains in the balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him? With whom did He consult? Who gave Him understanding? Who taught Him in the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and informed Him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales." Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver." He who's too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but He merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be His equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, not one of them is missing. Why then do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my ways hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired." 
they will walk and not become weary. Hmm. Well, I think it's obvious to all students of this section of Scripture that Isaiah is making an argument. He's arguing with the people of Judah, but the question becomes, what provokes the argument? Like, what provokes the prophet to, you know, give this argument about how great and transcendent God is? Well, I believe the, the, the position that Isaiah is countering, what he's arguing against in Judah, is in verse 27. Look again at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Uh, the Hebrew words for say and assert at the start of that verse, uh, those verbs uh, have a verb tense that communicates continuous action. In other words, this is what was going on in Isaiah's day. Isaiah is saying to the people, why do you keep saying? Why do you keep on asserting this idea about God. Uh, this was the spiritual mood of the times that Isaiah ministered in. The spirit of the age, spiritually speaking, when religion was the topic, the spirit of the age was for people to say, our God doesn't see. The spirit of the age was for people to say, my prayers are never answered because they escape God's notice. That was the spirit of the age that Isaiah uh, was ministering in. And so, verses 12 through 31 are his response to those assertions, really those accusations, uh, and, and this is his argument. And what I'm going to do is I want to break down his argument into five points. You can see the five points on the back of your bulletin. And I know that you're probably getting tired of me saying this. I say it more for visitors or people who haven't been with us for a while, so please forgive me. But whenever you see the word LORD in all capital letters in your Bible, it's referring, it's translating God's covenant name with Israel, Yahweh. He gave it as His covenant name with Israel. Uh, it sets Him apart from all the other gods, which is why I'm going to use it here in the outline. Uh, but it also, in, originally in Hebrew, the meaning of that name is, I am that I am. If you remember when Moses encountered God uh, at the burning bush, there's this moment where Moses says, so when I go and I tell your people that the God of their father is, uh, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent me, and they say, what's his name? What, what am I supposed to say? It's like, what's your name again? What am, I, what am I supposed to call you? And God says, I am that I am. He's this, it, it points to His self-existence. Um, and I'm using the name Yahweh. Instead of using the name Lord in all caps, I'm using the name Yahweh in our outline because I think it distinguishes between the true God and false conceptions of God that are in our cultures and other false gods in world religions. And the first argument Isaiah gives is this, Yahweh alone is Creator. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? All right, it's time for uh, audience participation here, congregational participation. Uh, Cup your, put out your hand and, and make a cup with it, all right? Okay, so what this verse is saying is that God measured all the waters of the oceans in the palm of His 
hand. Uh, when, the Hebrew, uh, when, when in Hebrew they use the word waters, plural, you can see that in verse 12, the waters, plural. When they would uh, speak that way, that was their way about talking about the oceans. They refer that way to the Mediterranean, what we would call the Mediterranean Sea, the Gulf of Aqaba to the south of them. Uh, that's how they referred to the oceans. Um, God has measured out all the oceans, all the water on earth, in the palm of His hand. Uh, so, I did some research on this. According to a U.S. geological survey, there are over 321 million cubic miles of water on planet Earth. Now, just as a reminder, remember what a cubic mile is? That, imagine we could have a… we'll imagine a tank. Uh, imagine you could have a tank, and it's a mile long and a mile wide, but then also a mile high filled with water. And what the U.S. Geological Survey is saying is, there's not just a million of those on planet Earth, there's 321 million of those cubic miles of water on planet Earth. And God measured that in the palm of His hand. He also marked out the heavens with a span. Now, in this verse, everything He refers to, every other thing He refers to is planet Earth. So, I think you could uh, refer to God… Um, measuring the, the atmosphere, the sky, the sky, the atmosphere that surrounds planet Earth uh, with a span. But also, when the Hebrews talk about the heavens, they, all, they often talk about the sun and moon and stars. So, I actually, my interpretation is, I think Isaiah is talking about the cosmos, not just our galaxy, all the galaxies that we see out there, God marked them off with a span. Now, a span for them, it was a more informal unit of measure, but uh, for the Hebrews, a span was from the tip of your pinky to the tip of your thumb. Um, that's a span. Um, and I believe that this is referring to God uh, uh, making, measuring the cosmos with just the span of His hand. Now, we don't use the span as a unit of measure anymore. We've gotten a little more objective about it, uh, rulers, tape measures, and such. But in sports, we do pay attention to who can palm a basketball, right? And I think most of you know, you know, almost every NBA player, all the college players, they can all palm a basketball. Well, I did some research, and uh, I found out uh, that the sun is 109 times larger than our planet. Well, if God can mark off the cosmos with a span, then He can palm the sun, no problem. And it wouldn't be like a basketball. It would be like Shaq palming a golf ball, right, or one of those little bouncy balls. That's how uh, amazing our God is. And then uh, he also talks about here calculating the dust of the earth by measure. I'm going to translate that as soil. How many of you have ever tried to move soil around in your yard, and you've had to, you've had to actually move cubic yards of soil? Has anybody ever had to do that? Uh, a few years ago, I created some garden boxes in our yard, and I had to move cubic yards of soil to fill those boxes. It was hard work. Well, when God count, uh, calculated the amount of soil needed for planet Earth, He used the equivalent of uh, one of those little buckets that a child takes to the beach to make sandcastles with. That's how He measured out all the soil of the earth. And when He calculated the Rocky Mountains and the Himalayas and all the hills of the earth, He used a pair of scales uh, that measures in ounces. Back then, of course, they had the the ones with the two plates, and, but he, he measures with uh, scales that we would measure ounces in. 
uh, to balance out all the mountains of the earth. Now, obviously, you guys know this, these are all anthropomorphisms to help us understand how great God is. We know that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. Uh, These are expressions to help us understand the immensity of the one who created all things. But as we think about that, don't miss this fact. All the units of measure in this verse are units that we use to measure small things, right? The palm, the palm of His hand, uh, the length of your fingers, uh, a bucket that can't even hold a gallon of water, a scale that uh, measures uh, the fruit you're about to buy from the grocery store in ounces. Uh, the contrast here is between the greatness of God compared to the relative smallness of the cosmos He's created. Now, the next two verses, that sets the table well, I think, for this whole section. Uh, But the next two verses, they ask a bunch of rhetorical questions. Now, I know you guys know what rhetorical questions are, right? They're questions that everybody in the room knows the answer to, and the speaker is not really asking a question. It's a dramatic way for the speaker to make a point. Nevertheless, we're going to have congregational Uh, participation in this. So, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14, and I'm going to pause where there are question marks, and I'm going to let you guys speak up and answer the question, okay? Here we go. Verse 13, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as His counselor has informed Him? Yeah, amen. With whom did He consult, and who gave Him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Right, yes. Yahweh is uh, unrivaled, unparalleled. He is the incomparable creator of all, and He is perfectly wise. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't drop the ball. Unlike us, He doesn't need anybody's help. Unlike us, He doesn't need anybody's counsel. Uh, Yahweh alone is the all-wise creator. But second, Yahweh alone is incomparable. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. When Isaiah transitions from talking about God as Creator to then talk about the nations, what he means here in the Hebrew way of thinking is mankind in our collective, united strength. Uh, That's what he's talking about, and he's comparing the strength of a united humanity with God's strength. Uh, Related words in Hebrew, and and they thought about strength, I think, a little bit differently than we do uh, in the modern era. Um, One of the related words in Hebrew for strength is the word for weightiness. And so, in the Hebrew mindset, a sumo wrestler or uh, uh, an offensive lineman for a professional football team, they had a certain kind of human glory about them in the Hebrew way of thinking, and here's the reason why. They're so massive, they're so heavy, they're so strong, you can't push them around, you can't move them, right? If, If they're trying to protect a certain, or if you're playing king of the hill like you did when you were kids, like good luck pushing them around. You're not going to be able to do it. And also, if you're trying to hold your ground and they come at you, you, you know you're probably going to lose the battle. And so, here's the comparison. The weightiness, the gravitas, the strength of a united humanity compared to God uh, is like a drop of water in a bucket. 
It's like a speck of dust on the scales at the grocery store that you can't see unless you're wearing glasses. And if you perceive it, you wouldn't blow it off the scale because you know it's not going to make any difference in how much you pay for those vegetables. It's meaningless. It makes no difference. Uh, And then now look at verse 16. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. Um, I've said this before. You guys know this. I moved from Southern California, which is candidly desert, honestly. And uh, I love, one of the things I love about Virginia is the trees. I love how green it is. Uh, I love going hiking in the forests and the state parks we have that are full of trees. And I think that uh, every nation and every region of the world has some forest uh, with the best trees that it's, you know, famous for. And in the ancient Near East, I I think for us in America, we would say the redwoods maybe in California uh, are the most amazing trees in our nation. And the redwood forest is this amazing national park. Well, in the ancient Near East, the, the forest that was famous was the forest in Lebanon. And the trees that were famous were the were the cedars of Lebanon. They were the tallest trees. They had this beautiful uh, hardwood that the kings liked to use to make their palaces if they were going to build with wood, uh, right? With ancient peoples, you build with whatever's readily available, right? And so, over there, they build with a lot of stone, even to this day. Uh, but when they would build structures with wood, they wanted cedars from Lebanon. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that when David was preparing materials for his son Solomon to build the temple, what did he do? He made a deal with King Hiram uh, of Lebanon in order to get cedars from Lebanon because of uh, their beauty and, and they're such a great wood to build with. Well, what Isaiah is saying in verse 16 is this. At the very end of the verse, he uses the word burnt offering, and I think that clues you in because he is being poetic here. That clues you into what he's talking about. What he's communicating is this. The forests of Lebanon don't contain enough firewood or enough animals to give Yahweh an appropriate sacrifice that is worthy of His greatness. And then verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before Him. They're regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, let me make a clarification. This is important. God isn't talking about the relative value of humanity here, right? All people are valuable because they're made in God's image. And God has made a a point about how valuable we are to Him when He sent His own Son to die for our sins so we could be pardoned for our rebellion and for our transgressions. Um, uh, God cares about each person. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. This is not about value. The comparison here that you got to keep straight is about strength. It's about the greatness of a collective, united humanity versus the greatness of God. In comparison with God's greatness and strength, uh, we're meaningless, all of us put together. Maybe a… I'm sorry, you, you guys are a really gracious congregation that you put up with my illustrations, but I'll use a crazy one here again. Um, it's almost as if God is saying, we're going to play a pickup game of football, and he's like, look, we got to try and make these teams fair. And the only way we can come close to making it fair is, all right, all seven billion of you versus me. I guess, I'll, I, I, guess I won't be able to play. I'll just play zone defense. And then he just absolutely destroys, he just monkey stomps us. It's a blowout. 
That's what's going on here. He's saying, look, uh, compared to God's power, all the nations of the earth, even if they would cooperate with each other and quit fighting, all the nations of the earth and their power and their glory is nothing compared to God. Um, When it comes to moving God or manipulating Him or tempting Him or influencing Him or bribing Him, our input is meaningless. It's nothing to Him. So, Yahweh alone is Creator. He's also incomparable. You know, it doesn't matter what you try to use to compare Him to. It, everything you could potentially compare God to falls so far short, it becomes a laughable comparison. It becomes really a meaningless comparison. And that's what I mean by God as incomparable. And then third, Yahweh alone is God. And I mean that as in uh, the true meaning of the word God. Look at what Isaiah says next. To whom then will you liken God, verse 18, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who's too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. And the point I want to make here is that as Isaiah contrasts the true God with idols, we want to say it this way, apart from Yahweh, there is an absence in the cosmos of anyone or anything that could be properly called God. Um, He says here, speaking of idolatry, whenever, I think it's, you've probably noticed this if you've been with us uh, for the last few months, whenever Isaiah talks about idolatry, he reverts to sarcasm right? He, re- he reverts to talking about the irony of it all, and he does that here, right? You want a craftsman to craft your idol so that it won't fall over, right? I mean, what could be more ridiculous than a god who falls over? But that's the whole point. That's the point that Isaiah is making. And the point is this, the so-called gods and goddesses of pagan religions, uh, they're nothing more than figments of human imagination. And what gives them away as figments of human imagination is that they're never deity. None of them are ever deity. They're just amplified humanity. They're not all-knowing. They're not all-wise. They're not all-powerful. They're always limited human-like creatures that are really just amplified humanity. They're superheroes, not omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, all, not the all-wise God who created all things, right? And not only that, If you remember, you know, Isaiah is interacting with Assyrian and Babylonian gods, but you could see this with the gods we're more, the pagan gods we're more familiar with in Rome and Greece. You ended up having parents who were so embarrassed about the behavior of the gods and goddesses in the stories that, like, they couldn't use them to teach their children morality, so they had to, like, revert to philosophy instead. Um... Uh, because it was embarrassing, right? Those gods are just human imaginations. They're inventions. They have to be made by humans. They have to be secured by humans so they won't fall over. They are utterly different than the only true God. And then Isaiah's fourth argument, verses 21 through 26, is that Yahweh alone is sovereign. Look at verse 21 and 22. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent 
to dwell in. Isaiah begins asking rhetorical questions again, and the point he's making is the same kind of point that you could read from the psalmist in Psalm 18 or from the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. Maybe we could answer Isaiah's question by saying it this way. Yes, from the beginning of history, God's eternal power and divine attributes have been clearly understood through what has been made. Um, And if people look out at creation and they decide they're going to ignore Him or deny Him, they're culpable, all right? But notice in verse 22, Yahweh sits above the circle of the earth, and the idea there is He reigns as King over all that is going on on the… It's almost like His throne room is above the circle of the earth, and He rules over all people, and in comparison to Him, our strength is like that of grasshoppers. Now, I know that grasshoppers are different than crickets, but let me, let me substitute crickets for grasshoppers for just a moment. Last Sunday night, I camped out in our front yard with Claire and May, and uh, at our house, uh, the, the frogs and the crickets dominate the night, but then when the sun comes up, oh my goodness, you might as well have pinch, pitched your tent in the aviary at the zoo because the birds are just, rah, they're so, they're beautiful, but when you want to sleep, you know, they're kind of loud. And, uh, and so when we went out, and I even noticed some crickets in the yard, uh, you know, when, when we were setting up the tent. Now, here's the question. As Claire and May and I went about our evening, did the crickets slow us down? Did they get in our way? Did we have to, like, negotiate with them about where we could set up a tent and where we couldn't set up a tent? No, it made no difference. And that's what this verse is communicating about God. Yahweh is sovereign over the inhabitants of the earth. And look who He's sovereign over in the next verses in the section. He's sovereign over the most powerful people on the earth, uh, the monarchs, the kings and queens of the earth. Uh, Verse 23, He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but He merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. Uh, maybe we could say it this way. Where is today, where is Alexander the not-so-great, right? I mean, where is Louis, Louis the Great. I started with Louis the Great. Where is he? What's he doing? What about Napoleon, um, right? These men are all gone. Their influence, though it was very immense in their generation, Uh, and they accomplished amazing things, Uh, it was only temporary. Their influence was only temporary. They're gone. And from the uh, perspective of eternity, all the most powerful men and women on planet earth in the present, when you think about it from the perspective of of eternity, and you start thinking on the scale of the time time span we'll experience in eternity, uh, they're going to be around like Vladimir Putin, right? The guy's a villain. I don't like him. He's going to, from the perspective of eternity, he's going to be around like 10 more minutes, and then he's going to be off the scene. And that's what's going on here. God is so much more powerful than all these people. He, he has been from eternity past. He is, and He ever will be. Um, and then notice verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host, or in Hebrew, armies by number, He calls them all by name because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power. Not one of them 
is missing. So now for Isaiah, planet earth has run out of good illustrations, so now he's going to use the stars. The comparison is going to be uh, between God and all the stars in all the galaxies. Yahweh calls every star by name. That's amazing. Uh, I was looking up some things on astronomy this week for the sermon, and uh, uh, contemporary astronomers, uh, the number they've settled on is that they believe ancient people could only see about 5,000 stars uh, with just the unaided eye. Um, But now, contemporary astronomy, aided by telescopes, is telling us that there are 400 billion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy alone. That doesn't include the other galaxies. And God created each one of the stars, and He knows them all by name. Think about that. 400, well, more than 400 billion stars, but if we limited it to just the Milky Way, 400 billion stars. I have three children. I can't keep them straight. You know, I need something, and I'm like, Grant Claire May, whatever your name is, get over here. Like, I, he keeps them all straight. He knows them all by name. And notice also the, the imagery here. I just want to make this clear. The imagery in Hebrew, the word host is armies. And when God is calling them by name, I think the, what Isaiah is setting up, he's setting up really what amounts to an, a military illustration. God doesn't just know each one of them by name, uh, you know, and refer to them affectionately, right, and give them a hug. He calls roll. He has them come out in ranks, and He calls roll. And because of the strength of His power and His might, not one of them dares to go AWOL. That's the idea uh, of the verse. And, and so, based on all of that, uh, then, uh, in light of all of that, that Yahweh alone is Creator, that He is incomparable, there's nothing you can compare Him to, that He's the only one who can truly be called God, that He is sovereign, in light of all of that then, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Nothing is hidden from God, right? And He will bring about justice to pass by His power, but I, I think that and I don't have time. This is like a whole other sermon I would need to get into, and I won't do that to you here. But when we talk about justice, we need to bow the knee to the fact that it's going to be His definition of justice, not necessarily ours, which our sense of justice, let's just admit it at times when we're angry, it can actually be very vengeful, right, Um, and cruel and unusual. It's His definition of justice, and it's a definition of justice that happens in His timing, not ours, because He's working on a much bigger plan than what we perceive or understand. The the correct conclusion to the whole matter then is in uh, the final verses. Uh, Look at verses 28 through 31 with me. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Um, because, like all of us, I relate to God in part through my experiences, uh, I find this verse breathtaking. Yahweh never gets tired. Can you even imagine what it would be like? Just to never get tired, never run out of energy ever. He never gets tired. It's not like the sun sets on one part of planet earth and Yahweh says, well, that was a day. 
Oh, I'm going to sleep well tonight. Oh, it feels way too good to lie down on this bed right now. Oh. Like, he doesn't do that. that because he has inexhaustible resources, inner, inexhaustible energy. He never gets tired. He never eats. He never sleeps. He never takes a bathroom break. He never goes on vacation. He never gets sick. He never takes a mental health day because everything that's going on in the universe makes him frazzled, right? That doesn't happen. Uh, he never loses his ability to focus. Uh, he never becomes physically or mentally or emotionally tired. And out of his excess, he gives renewed energy to those who wait for him. Now, we've seen this word wait. Where was that? Verse 31, at the beginning of verse 31, we've seen this word wait before as we've been going through Isaiah. And one of the things I, I want to emphasize every time we see it is that in the Hebrew way of thinking, and you see this with parallelism where other words are used interchangeably, in the Hebrew way of thinking, waiting on the Lord is very closely associated with hoping in Him and trusting in Him. So we could say it this way, um, those who put their hope for happiness in Yahweh those who trust in Him instead of trusting in themselves, those who wait for Him to vindicate them in His timing instead of trying to vindicate themselves, those people are the ones Yahweh gives strength to. Now, I don't know about you, but I will confess freely, I needed this vision of God this week as I prepared this sermon. It's a comfort for me in the middle of my troubles to know that Yahweh alone is Creator, that He alone is incomparable, that He alone is God in the true sense of the word, in terms of deity. He alone is sovereign, and He alone is dependable. And I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, your way is not hidden from the Lord. He's numbered every hair on your head, and He cares more about you than anything else in His creation, including the animals He's made. He does care about the justice that is due to you, but He will bring that justice to pass in His own timing, not yours. And uh, that's important because He's not ignoring your prayers. The problem is He's utterly other than we are. He has no limitations. His wisdom is far above our wisdom. He's working out a plan bigger than anything we can imagine. And because of the scale of His plan and because of His wisdom, that means that His timetable is often not our timetable, right? Uh, he seems terrifyingly patient to us. To us, at times, He seems slow, right? Uh, but there's a wisdom behind His timing. And in His wisdom, I want to remind you, He found a way to pardon sinners while still maintaining His justice and making sure every sin is paid for. And I think that's important for us to say, especially in our cultural context, because in our culture, people talk about the God of the Bible mostly to reject Him, but He does, he does get discussed and I think this is important. This is, this, is a, uh, um, this is a contrast in Scripture to the way that our people in our culture like to talk about the God of the Bible. The preoccupation of our culture is, how could a good God condemn good people? But that's not the preoccupation of the prophets or the apostles. The preoccupation of the prophets and apostles is, how can a good God pardon evil people? And by wicked and evil, they mean all of us because all of us have broken God's law. Well, in His inscrutable wisdom and in His inexhaustible energy, God has found a way to redeem all people who re repent and believe in Him, sinners though they be. 
And if Yahweh created every single star, if He's named all of them, if He's set the galaxies in perfect balance with each other, do you think He's going to somehow mess up your life story? Right? It's just, it's not going to happen. If God can manage the stars, He can manage your life uh, with your best long-term spiritual interests at heart. He sent His Son, uh, whom He prophesied through Isaiah, uh, in order to redeem us from our sins, and His greatness stands as the foundation upon which the plan of redemption is founded. No one can compare to Yahweh. Every potential comparison you could choose falls so far short, it's meaningless. God alone is awesome, uh, according to the original meaning of that English word. God alone is great. Our God is incomparable. Let's pray.